Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. I'm Sarah Gura. I'm a licensed clinical professional counselor in the state of Illinois. I am an EMDR therapist, a yoga teacher, and my practice is the self-care path in Burr Ridge where I treat first responders. This is season two, episode two, and today's topic is about mental health professionals. But first, and as always, I would love for you to take a nice deep breath in. And on the exhale, maybe pull the shoulders down away from the ears, straighten the spine, and just allow yourself to root or ground down through your feet or your sit bones, and just really, hopefully, relax your body and prepare yourself to listen. As always, I like to remind people that transitions are important, but between activities, whether you're an adult or a child, we all need just a moment to say, okay, shifting, transitioning, and now adjusting into the next activity. But today I wanted to talk about different mental health professional types because I think it's important for your own knowledge and education as we, you know, create a peer support culture and a culture in the first responder world that is more mindful about psychology as it's relevant to your career, you should understand the different types of mental health professionals. And I'm going to start right at the beginning and say that an MHP doesn't need anything more than a high high school degree. You can work in any social service agency for the most part and be labeled an MHP. You might go through some training Um, But for the most part, MHP is that generic that you can literally be hired and work in a social service agency, usually supervised by a licensed clinical social worker. But nevertheless, you're considered a mental health professional of some kind in those places. Now you can move on to get your bachelor's degree, whether it's a bachelor of arts or a bachelor of science in psychology, and again, still be called a mental health professional without a license or specific training in counseling or social work. Um, Bachelor level information is a beautiful introduction and a useful introduction to the topic, but you're not quite considered clinical yet. And that, at least in the state of Illinois, that's pretty much how we operate. Now, from your bachelor's degree, you can go to your doctorate degree or you can take a master's program. So if you go into the master's program, again, we have a master of science or a master of arts program. And once you graduate, you can become a licensed professional counselor or a licensed social worker. And what that means is that you are not able to work without supervision yet, um, but you can work as a counselor or as a therapist. So usually the type that would do one hour appointments or so with a client who has a mental or behavioral health concern. Now, after you have done your clinicals or your internship plus two to three more years of experience, in the field being supervised, you can then test for your clinical license. So you can have a Master of Science or a Master of Arts or a Master of Social Work and then test for that clinical licensure. So what we call that is a licensed clinical professional counselor or a licensed clinical social worker. 
Now, again, once you're at that level, no supervision is required. We always have to do continuing education, but that supervision isn't required. And what that license allows you to do is you can complete assessments with your clients. You can diagnose your clients, which is really important to understand that we use the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders to do that. So that means that it's a real medical issue. There's an actual ICD-10 code um, for that diagnosis. And then, of course, we can treat that. So that means we can write a treatment plan, we can administer that treatment plan, and we are also able to do aftercare with that licensure. Now, if you decide to stop there in your education, of course you can, but you can also move on to your doctorate degree. But I want to emphasize that usually the path is bachelor's degree right into a doctoral program. And maybe to be clear too, there's a couple of different doctorate degrees and they have some differences. Um, one being the ED.D degree. So that's a doctor of education. And that's a professional degree that's designed for practitioners pursuing educational leadership roles. So that's a little bit different. You could also get an M period ED degree, which is a master of education. And that is also used um, so that you have the opportunity to apply your knowledge in many different settings like charter schools, home schools, not-for-profit education programs, even higher education or corporate environments. Um, I forgot to mention that that is a master's degree that sometimes um, is used in the mental health professional world. Um, but I'm going to jump from that and mention the ED.D again, which is that doctorate of education, um, which is very different than the other types of doctorates in psychology. And usually those ED degrees are licensed at the same level as a master's level practitioner. So even though we call them doctor, they are licensed clinical professional counselors, which is the same as the master of science, the master of arts, or the master of social work. So I hope this doesn't sound like a bunch of jumble stuff. But again, when you are looking for a therapist, you want to understand what these letters mean, what their education means and how they were trained and how are they licensed and what are they able to do and what can they not do. But maybe what is also confusing is the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. So a psychologist has a PsyD, a doctorate in psychology, and they often do psych testing. And that psych testing uh, generates a report about your mental status. And they usually write like recommendations for counselors or for other reasons, whatever those happen to be. At the PsyD level, they are licensed as a licensed clinical psychologist. So that's called an LCP. And some of them will actually do counseling. Like they'll do the hour-long appointments, <clears throat> excuse me, and see patients. 
and do the same thing that a master's level licensed clinical professional counselor would do. They assess, diagnose, treat, and recommend aftercare. Um, but again, I think a lot of PsyDs end up doing the psych testing and that might just be because there's more money in it or they have a strong interest in it. Um, spending one hour at a time with each client uh, doesn't generate as much income as doing a psych test and generating a report. So that, you know, might describe why that doctoral level is not as present in the counseling referral area. So sometimes people wonder, like, is master's degree um, adequate for counseling or therapy? And we say, of course, because that's what we specialize in. Uh, that master's level is usually the person who's going to spend hour by hour with the clients. Now, the other degree um, or the other type of psychology professional is a psychiatrist. Now, a psychiatrist has an MD. And that MD, in order to practice psychiatry, which is um, prescribing medications, they have to have a medical license in their state. Now, they don't have to be board certified, but they are in fact a doctor, they have a medical license, and they prescribe psychiatric medications usually. that They take that focus in their practice. So these um, psychiatrists often, I would say, very rarely ever do counseling. They're not going to provide the therapy. They, like I said, they will assess, they will diagnose and treat, but their treatment modality is medications. So that's really important to notice because maybe from my point of view as a first responder therapist, I often will get a phone call from a psychiatrist and they will ask me for my clinical opinion, my clinical assessment, my clinical diagnosis, my clinical impressions of how the patient is participating in the treatment plan uh, as a part of their assessment of the client. And a lot of times, if I put this into the first responder world again, the psychiatrist will rely heavily on my input, but of course also their own clinical <clears throat> excuse me, gut and experience. I just ate a buffalo chicken salad. So all that spiciness is making me clear my throat. <laughs> Not that any of you wanted to know that. But at the time of this recording, it's 2020 and COVID is around and I promise I'm not um, sick or coughing. I'm just clearing my throat because of spices. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think, again, you know, important information to notice how we work together as psychology professionals with a first responder. So another type of psychology professional would be a neuropsychologist. And this is an American Board of Clinical Neuropsychology license. So they may be licensed as a psychology professional, but they also can have an ABCN is what that is called. So again, super important uh, to understand the differences and the different roles. So a master's level licensed clinical professional counselor or a licensed clinical social worker is probably going to spend the most 
time with their client as far as gathering information, treating, and completing a treatment plan and therapeutic service. A PsyD is most likely to do all the psych testing, which helps the master's level person tremendously because usually at the end of those reports, they can write some recommendations and say, this is where the hot spot is, this is what is a priority issue, this is the treatment modality they are most likely to respond to. Um, so those reports are always interesting and very helpful to me. Unless they do not understand the first responder culture, then I always feel like they overdiagnose. They make things sound worse than they really are, or they underreport in some way, just because maybe they don't understand the cultural context of the patient that they're assessing. So in that case, it could be kind of frustrating. Now, I also want to say with the neuropsychologist, that has been very helpful to me because they can identify where in the brain structure there may be a problem or concern worth checking out in the medical field. So I can say in the past I have had some guys where I just noticed in the assessment something was off or the way that they were responding to therapy was atypical and I've referred to a neuropsychologist and the results are always again fascinating to me, fascinating to me because he or she may say, it seems like there is a deficit or an issue here. Let's get a brain scan, right? We'll do the CT scan and we'll see if there are any issues. And in fact, we have found some issues that the problem was not emotional or behavioral, mental in any way. Um, we, maybe we found a tumor or cancer um, or a, you know, aneurysm or a clot of some kind, uh, that will help us understand, oh, what's going on with this person and their body. So the neuropsychologist, again, has a completely different role. So when it comes to, again, mental health professionals, I'm going to go through this one more time. In many social work settings, you don't need a degree, you just need some training. In a lot of social work settings, which include sexual assault service centers, domestic violence shelters, addiction centers, hospitals. They might require a bachelor's degree and we can still call you an MHP. But then at the master's level, you can be licensed right when you graduate, but you need supervision. After you've gained some experience and passed another round of state testing, you can work without supervision. And that's where we put the word C for clinical in the licensure. And again, with the doctorate programs, we have an education level, you know, doctoral level program, and they are often licensed at the same level as a master's degree professional. And then you have a PsyD, a psychologist, which does testing, a neuropsychologist, which specializes in your brain structures, and then an MD, which is a medically licensed psychology professional who can prescribe medication. And we all work together in many different ways to understand one person. So again, sometimes in the first responder world, I have been in investigations, arbitrations, pension hearings, 
where they clearly do not understand. They just hear doctor and they assume that that means doctor. Um, but it could mean that they specialize in educating. Some may specialize in brain structure. Some may specialize in prescribing meds and some may specialize in psychological testing. That does not mean that they specialize in treating uh, the patient through counseling or therapy. And all of those roles, once again, I want to emphasize are important. And I think it's going to take quite a bit of reiterating and reteaching this particular topic to get people on board with understanding that we all work together in different ways. Now, the other thing I want to cover in this podcast is what is a release of information? Many people I have heard from in the first responder world during orientation will have to sign a release of information that says, as a public servant, you release information today for the rest of your career. Excuse me, I promise I don't have the COVID. Uh, (laughs) I got to stop eating spicy food. So with the release of information that you guys sign at work, I do not consider that valid and I cannot because I cannot be protected, right? So I have the job of releasing that information, not your department and not you yourself. So when you come into counseling and I have to take a note and someone requests that information, you will always, in my practice, have to sign a release of information that is on my letterhead because it is specifically outlined by, I'll say his name, I'll refer to him, his name is Jonathan Nye. He's a mental health counselor or mental health professional lawyer in the state of Illinois. And he clearly outlines for us how to stay compliant with the state of Illinois. And he teaches about the Illinois Department of Professional Regulation Standards for releasing information. And so there is no way that I'm ever going to share information unless you have discussed it with me and we have signed a piece of paper that says you had informed consent. So any work releases for me will not work. Will it work with other counselors? Maybe. They might see that release come across, think that it's valid, and submit the information. But if it does not have those state regulations or requirements and their letterhead on it, that opens up that therapist for you to sue them or to consider it malpractice. And there's like something like $50,000 fines and jail time for breaking HIPAA law. So of course, I'm going to be very careful because compared to other therapists, I get more subpoenas and inquiries and phone calls than any of my peers or colleagues. And they often tell me there is no way that I would work with first responders for that reason alone because they absolutely hate subpoenas and they get very nervous about them. I used to, but now I just understand how to protect myself to make sure that there is no malpractice and there is no breaking of the HIPAA law. So again, I want you to realize that when you go to a counselor as a first responder, everything is private, everything is confidential. If you want to release your information, once again, you have to sign a valid release of information 
or you really could have a therapist's ass on a platter. That's for sure. So again, maybe I should say with a release of information, well, let me say this. I was going to say, again, you're very protected. And with a release of information that's valid, there's a couple of elements there that you're looking for. One is that the consent expires. So you can't sign a release of information and it be a release forever and ever and ever. For me, everything expires within a year unless you revoke the consent sooner. The second element is consequence for not complying. So I want to know how pressured are you to release this information. Uh, Consequences for not submitting, let's say, your patient file could include you're going to get written up for not following an order. You could be fired. Um, Your case may not be considered. And so I have to realize that if you sign this release of information, because there is a heavy consequence if you don't, like maybe you won't get your PETA benefits, you won't get your workman's comp benefits, that takes away a piece of the consent, doesn't it? So sometimes the attitude is, well, they're a public servant and there is no privacy or confidentiality or HIPAA law here. But I know it surely does exist because you could turn around and sue me for malpractice or file a complaint against me for breaking HIPAA law. So again, it feels scary to say it uh, for me because maybe like my colleagues, I would really rather not deal with this stuff, but you need to know that you have some rights. Now, what if your file is subpoenaed for some reason? Usually that subpoena, I would say nine out of 10 times is coming from your own lawyer. It's not something that's just randomly happening and it's certainly not happening often. It happens way more in my office than it would in a general practice office, a non-first responder office. But that subpoena is also something that I'm not going to respond to unless I take some reasonable effort to inform you of that subpoena and give you a chance to reject disclosing that information. But usually, once again, when it's your lawyer, you're the one who asked the lawyer to contact me or send that subpoena in the first place. So I don't really worry about those very much. But again, even if you signed a release with your lawyer, you will also have to sign a release with me. Same thing with any other providers. When I mentioned that there are mental health professionals and other doctors involved in your treatment, I want to always get a release of information in order to speak with them. Now, the last type is a court order. Maybe I can talk about that for a second. And that is when very specific information about your treatment is requested and you still do a release of information to cover your ass. So it's very hard to say no to a court order because that's from a judge. It's not from, you know, some random lawyer or, you know, another agency of some type. A court order coming from a judge uh, will be very specific. And I always do my due diligence. I remind them about HIPAA law, privacy, and confidentiality. And when I have done that in the past, just so you know, in my experience, they actually back down off of it and respect the field and the privacy and the confidentiality. 
or they'll say, you're, you're right, this is HIPAA law protected information and they have that right, but we would like at least this much information. Will your client consent on that release of information? And for the most part, releasing the information benefits you and the consequence could be minimal. If the consequence is high, once again, we always discuss that. So that informed consent is super important and a therapist could be in a lot of trouble if they don't talk about it. The other thing is, I may say that I'm going to release this information to your lawyer, but it is contraindicated for you to read your own notes. If you are in the middle of therapy, it is not a great idea to read what your therapist is writing about you. And for the most part, what I write about you is very, very minimal so that um, we don't have to deal with opinions. So I have definitely learned that in the past as well. And so with first responders, we may say uh, things uh, that are minimal or wind it down to action words like assessed, listened, provided, assisted, completed treatment plan, things like that. Um, and, and it's kind of a juggling act, you know, the, the notes are there. We would like to think to help the therapist remember each patient and to stay on track with them. But when a counselor or therapist is writing notes, we're also writing notes in case there is a audit with insurance. We're writing notes with the thought in mind that things could be subpoenaed and we don't want to do any harm to our clients. We want them to open up as much as possible so that we actually help them. And sometimes that means you don't write explicitly any uh, revealing information. So it's, it's quite a balancing act. But I thought once again that as we dig into this podcast and talk about controversial things, that we would need the basic vocabulary and we would under or need to understand who are the different psychology professionals that might have a hand in this and that might have different opinions based on the perspective that they take. Again, one might be focused on education, one may be focused on the psych test results, another could be really into the brain structure and its ability or lack of ability, another could be interested in medication, and yet another provider is going to be uh, adamant about the treatment plan that's actually happening in the therapy office. So I hope that this was helpful. I know there's a lot of alphabet soup in there as Patty discussed in the last podcast, but that is actually of interest and something important for you to understand as we gain more momentum at making psychology relevant to the first responder career. So thank you for listening to First Responder Psychological Support. Again, I'm Sarah Gura, a licensed clinical professional counselor for first responders at the Self-Care Path in Burridge, Illinois. And as always, do life so it doesn't do you. Take good care and stay very safe. Okay, bye.